0: Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Good morning, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is the future of marriage equality, and we will be discussing how the Dobbs decision has impacted the rights of the LGBTQ community and their families. My guest today is Marie Amelie George, and she is an expert on the subject. I'll start by allowing her to introduce herself. Thanks so
1: much for having me. Um, I'm I'm Marie Emily George. I'm an associate professor at Wake Forest
0: University School of Law, and I write about gay and lesbian legal history and contemporary LGBTQ rights. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And and, and as usual, my guest is being modest. Um, You know, she's written a ton on the subject, has been featured in so many major law reviews and also has a book forthcoming that we will discuss later in the episode. Um, So if there's anyone I wanna talk to about this subject, it is Marie Amelie. All right, so let's start with some background information. And I think what is most compelling to me, like when I talk to friends, they assume that homosexuality has been decriminalized forever. They assume that we have had rights for a while. They understand that same-sex marriage is new, but they're not aware that other rights are far more recent. So I would love for you to explain to everyone what it could mean if a case like Lawrence v. Texas gets overturned. So that's a fantastic point, right? Marriage equality is new, but
1: LGBTQ rights generally are super new. Lawrence v. Texas, which was the Supreme Court opinion striking down Uh, laws criminalizing consensual same-sex sexual activity, is from 2003. So the Supreme Court's recognition of LGBTQ rights is incredibly recent. There was one case before that from 1996. Um, But the main one we think about in terms of recognizing um, rights is 2003, it's Lawrence. And um, at the time the Supreme Court decided Lawrence versus Texas, 14 states had consensual sodomy bans on the books. And those laws are still in place, which means that if the Supreme Court were to overturn Lawrence versus Texas, fourteen states uh, would would have their consensual sodomy laws still apply. Um, and what's really dangerous about those laws is not that um, the police was going around trying to enforce these laws against people, but that they made gays and lesbians definitionally criminals and said that they were outside of, Uh, the normal American populace. And so what was really pernicious about these laws wasn't just the fact that it criminalized same-sex sexual activity, um, but that it had an expressive effect that bled into other areas of law and justified discrimination against members of the LGBTQ plus community.
0: You know, and I teach first-year contracts. And when I teach first-year contracts, there's a case where a teacher is um, fired for getting arrested for engaging in consensual homosexual sex. And it's from the 60s. And all of my students say, and it's a coercion case because he was forced to resign. He wasn't fired and then he gets acquitted. And so he wants his job back. And so many of my students say, oh, well, that's because this case is from the 60s, right? They really, really, truly think it's because the case is from the 60s.
1: And it's not. There were so many later cases where people weren't even arrested, right? They spoke out in favor of LGBTQ plus rights, or they identified as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And school board said, well, you're admitting to being a criminal and that's a, and, and engaging in immoral activity, and therefore we can fire you.
0: Exactly. It's deemed, you know, I don't think people understand what criminalization means. Um, it, it means that you can be deemed to be, committing a crime of moral turpitude such that you can't have jobs. And, you know, it's only recently that employment protection has been ex- extended to LGBTQ plus people as well.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's employment discrimination, it's housing discrimination, it's discrimination in family law. Criminal law matters because of what it does, you know, in terms of prescribing conduct and punishing people for certain conduct. But it also really matters because of its expressive effect that carries into so many other areas.
0: Exactly. Um, I, you know, what I tell students when I talk about Lawrence is, you know, that case came out my third year of law school, right? And, you know, I'm old, but I'm not that old, right? So if it is my third year of law school, um, and I remember, you know, one of my professors had worked on the decision and worked on briefing for it and was super excited about it. But, you know, it is something that when I took HIV in the law, my third year of law school it was, the, it, was a, it was a handout, it wasn't in the book and that's how recent this decision is. So Clarence Thomas is essentially why we're having this conversation in the first place. Because although the overturning of, um, uh, over Obergefell and of Lawrence v. Texas and other decisions and even the birth control decisions aren't in the body of the Dobbs decision. In the concurrence, Thomas kind of mentions as a one-off oh, by the way, all these other substantive due process things go away too. Um, And I've been told I'm overreacting. (laughs) Um, I've been told, oh, there's no way the court would do that. There's no way they would overturn Obergefell, um, even though it's based on substantive due process and the right of privacy. Um, Do you think these cases can fall? Do you think, you know, with our current composition of the court that, that, that more than just Roe falls? I mean, there's no way to know definitively what is going to happen.
1: There are reasons to think that the Dobbs decision opens the door to overturning Obergefell and Lawrence. There are also good reasons to think that the court won't do that. Um, Before we go into what could fall, I do want to note what won't fall. Um, And that's the Bostock case from uh, 2020, where the Supreme Court um, uh, ruled that uh, Title VII uh, protects um, Gays, lesbians, and transgender individuals from discrimination in employment, um, because that was based on a textualist interpretation of, of the Civil Rights Act, not on the Constitution. So um, Thomas's concurrence highlights a lot of rights that could fall. Um, but, you know, there there is
0: one thing that is outside of that. And I did want to know that before we talk about what the dominoes that might follow. Well, and I think that's an important distinction, especially for lay people. Um, You know, what Thomas is talking about is substitute due process based privacy rights, which start at Roe or are are most crystallized and solidified. It doesn't start there, but that's that's what everyone kind of spins off of now. Mm -hmm. There are cases that predate Roe that have similar holdings, but, you know, that's kind of the birth control problem. Like, you know, do we go all the way back and get rid of birth control too? Um, But anything that is just the Supreme court interpreting something that Congress has done is okay. Um, And so I'd love for you to just, I know we've got both stock. Are there other opinions um, that encompass LGBTQ rights that may also survive, even if we get rid of substantive due process and privacy? honestly,
1: that's the only case that is based on a statute. The rest is constitutional. Um, so the ones that, that are most at risk are the ones that, um, that Thomas pointed out, um, Justice Thomas pointed out, uh, Lawrence and Obergefell. Um, and those are two pretty significant decisions, right? They are the major pillars of, um, of um, LGBTQ rights,
0: now, we, I, I keep saying LGBTQ or LGBTQ+, and um, I have to be honest in that the reason I even say that is you, right? I heard you present your work and explain, you know, why a more inclusive term is useful or necessary. So I, I would love for you to talk to us about why it is that you prioritize that term over others. So I should say that I use LGBTQ+, um, People will use different
1: acronyms and refer to the movement in different ways and to the rights issues in different ways. And how they refer to them also has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so national organizations identify themselves as LGBTQ rights groups. So they represent lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer interests. Um, but some also represent intersex and asexual rights, which is why um, I talked about the LGBTQ plus movement. Um, These organizations haven't always been so comprehensive. They were specifically gay, lesbian for a very long time and then became LGBT and then became LGBTQ um, and now have expanded beyond that. Um, And these national organizations that identify as LGBTQ are not as comprehensive in the people they represent as many would like. So there's a lot of variation within the movement what uh, organizations do at the state and local level is different than the national level, um, but overwhelmingly we can talk about an LGBTQ plus movement, and the plus is meant to include intersex, asexual, and sometimes other rights.
0: And, you know, I think it's important to think about this history, um, especially as we get into some of the other topics and. You know, think about a little bit about what does it mean when you are just lesbian and gay and you don't include transgender and and other um, other people in the movement. Um, you know, how has that impacted um, the way we have advocated and the way um, even just just the, the the cases that end up going to trial? So
1: the the it, there used to be a gay and lesbian rights movement that became an LGBT movement um, in the the mid late nineties. Um, So really quite recently again. Um, And it was based on understanding that uh, the discrimination that gays and lesbians faced um, was actually very similar to the discrimination that transgender individuals faced in that gays and lesbians um, were discriminated against because of the gender of their sexual partners, but they were very often discriminated against when they violated gender norms. So people were identified as, uh, as being gay men because they were more effeminate than what is, was considered the norm. Uh, lesbians were identified and discriminated against as lesbians because they appeared more masculine than the norm. And that was often what led to discrimination in employment and housing and other areas of law. Um, transgender individuals face the same type of discrimination. They are discriminated against when they don't conform to gender norms um, of their um, their assigned sex at birth, or even after they transition, or in the when they live in the gender in which they identify for not meeting all of the norms. And there's incredible pressure to uh, fit stereotypes of how men and women are thought to behave, and so fighting against discrimination against gays and lesbians uh, was the same type of fight as fighting against um, discrimination against trans individuals. Um, so the, the discrimination was part and parcel. Um, that's why the movement came together. And I should say that um, it for a long time, the movement fought um, uh, primarily for gay and lesbian rights. It has um, moved to be more uh, expansive and uh, represent trans rights as well. And opponents of the LGBTQ plus uh, movement have really tried to put a wedge between uh, the members of the coalition. They, now that there is more acceptance of uh, gay and lesbian uh, rights and same-sex sexuality, but not as much uh, acceptance of trans rights, opponents have really focused on trans rights as a way to push back the rights of all members of the LGBTQ plus community.
0: You know, I think it's worth noting that uh, Bostock, the case that we talked about earlier, um, involves, is it two trans, I can't remember, I know one person was trans, the one who passed away. Um, But was it, were both people in that, both of the plaintiffs in that case uh, trans? There
1: were, there were two trans plaintiffs, and I believe there was also a gay and lesbian, there were a gay or lesbian plaintiff because
0: um, the case addressed both sexual and gender identity, or none of the cases. You know, I think, again, it's one of the ones where when I talk to my students, they're surprised that we needed a case that would include um, gay and lesbian people and trans people in Title VII in the first place.
1: Well, what's remarkable is that when that case was up before the Supreme Court, people were so surprised because they assumed that federal anti-discrimination protections encompassed LGBTQ+. Um, it seemed like a no-brainer. And yet that was a long state. That was a decades-long fight. Um People have been bringing cases since the 70s, trying to get that right right. record. And one of the reasons why it surprised so many people is that when they got training on Title VII, what they were told was that Title VII protects against discrimination based on sex, which means that uh, you can't force people to to conform to gender stereotypes. And discriminating against people when they don't conform to gender stereotypes is a violation of Title VII. Given what we've said about how it is that gays, lesbians, trans individuals are discriminated against because of their gender nonconformity, um, it seems logical that Title VII's protections based on sex encompasses that as well. But courts were trying to draw a line between people who are discriminated based on sex because they were male and female, as opposed to people who are discriminated based on gender nonconformity because they were gay, lesbian, or trans. And then we got the Bostock case, which said, look, it's all one and the same. If we're not allowed, if we're saying that it is wrong to discriminate against people because of gender nonconformity, um, then if we're discriminating against uh, gays, lesbians, and trans people because they don't conform to gender stereotypes, then the law extends to that as well. There's no reason to slice and
0: dice the different identities. And And I think, you know, people don't recognize how many kind of quote unquote, innocent or little things come into sex discrimination in the workplace. You know, things like men wear this uniform, women wear that uniform, or men must have short hair, or, you know, and, and if someone is transitioning and saying, I now would like to wear the female uniform, or I now would like to wear the male uniform, those are things that were employers were allowed to to keep them from doing. They were allowed to force them to continue wearing uniforms that fit their assigned gender at birth. Absolutely. Um, and
1: uh, now the fight has moved from Title VII to Title IX, which is a you know, very similar law, but it applies in education. And uh, the open question before courts is, um, does this reasoning about Title VII apply to Title IX? And what do we do with respect to children who are transitioning? Is that a different issue? Um, so the issue, so the, the question that the court resolved in Bostock um, has implications for for rights that are still you know trying to be realized.
0: yeah, and the you know the the sports and children issue um is so, so heated. I think unnecessarily so. um, I think you know, i i just, I, I think it's silly that that's what people are focusing on, kind of how bathrooms are focused on uh, and maybe still are being focused on. um but so. but the reason it can be is because we have not extended these protections across all federal laws yet. Absolutely. And so
1: that is certainly, um, you know, we are focusing on what the court might do to overturn established precedent, Lawrence and Obergefell. Um, but we should also be asking, what does this mean for the future cases that are going to come before the Supreme Court? And it, there seems to be a little question that um, bathroom access, locker room access, you um, how uh, whether teachers have to uh, use the, the preferred pronouns of their students, that seems to be getting set up to, to go to the Supreme Court.
0: Which, kind of scary given who our current Supreme Court, what our current Supreme Court composition is, and even what the federal composition of, uh, the composition of the other federal courts are. Now let's get into marriage equality and families. Um, you know, my first question for you is, has marriage equality ever been stable? And I ask you this as the legal historian that you are and and the, the, the overall expert. So more stable than abortion, I would say. Um,
1: you know, the, the Obergefell decision came down in 2015. Immediately afterwards, uh, there were um, attorney generals and clerks sort of resisting the decision, saying that they wouldn't issue uh, licenses to same-sex couples. Um, but that... Um, obstruction really fell away very quickly, and it became limited to purveyors of wedding-related goods and services. So, uh, bakers asked to create wedding cakes, wedding cakes. Uh, photographers asked to um, shoot uh, weddings between same-sex couples. Uh, venues that were asked to host the weddings of same-sex couples, and um, states pretty quickly shut down a lot of those objections. Um, they were those objections were based on religious refusals with the purveyors of the wedding- related goods and services, saying that um, their faith uh, meant that they believed these unions were immoral and that providing their services or their goods would make them complicit in something that they found immoral. Um, uh, there are there are some uh, religious objections that that courts have upheld. Um, And in fact, the Supreme Court um, uh, said that, uh, you know, a baker who brought his case uh, all the way to the Supreme Court needed to have his religious objections considered. Um, But most of that has died down and uh, we've really found a stasis in a way that um, I'm not sure we ever had with abortion. So since Roe, legislators have been considering laws to restrict abortion access, Uh, People have been um, mobilizing against uh, abortion access. We've had decades of that. Uh, Things are really quiet on the marriage front, uh, which makes it, um, I guess I I would say it's why, even though it has been a shorter period, I would say it is more stable than abortion.
0: Now, what about the efforts in Congress um, to codify marriage equality? Um, Do you have faith in those efforts? Well, so, no.
1: Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There are two different issues for why the, the federal government should be involved. First, uh, it passed the Defense of Marriage Act in the 90s, which defined marriage uh, for purposes of federal law as being between opposite sex couples. And um, the Supreme Court struck that down in 2013 in uh, a, the case of um, of Windsor. United States versus Windsor. And that was really important because there are more than a thousand federal benefits that turn on the definition of marriage. So if you limited those benefits to opposite sex couples, uh, people who had entered into legal marriages that states recognized couldn't get the corresponding federal benefits. Uh, This was, uh, in Windsor, the issue was tax benefits, but one of the main areas in which this was a huge problem was immigration. So if um, couples, one was a U.S. citizen, one was not. uh, So if a same-sex couple where one person was a U.S. citizen, one was not, got married, they couldn't sponsor their spouse uh, for a visa to the U.S. uh, or get them citizenship. So I, I had friends who had to leave the country because they couldn't have their spouse's marriage recognized, but for purposes of federal immigration law, even though their marriage was legal in the state Um, where it took place. Um, These sort of DOMA refugees um, show just what a tangible harm that has on couples really all around the country. Uh, It's really denying the benefits of citizenship to to same-sex couples. Um, Now, Congress can act to do away with DOMA. And yesterday, the House of Representatives passed a law that would do away with DOMA. Um, So that is pretty important. And the Senate 100% needs to act to to remove DOMA and change the the federal definition of marriage. Um, But that's part of what Congress is trying to do. It's an important part, but it's only one part. The other part of the law the House passed uh, purports to require states uh, to recognize same-sex unions that are are entered into um, validly in their states. So right now, um, let's say say Obergefell gets struck down, a couple, a same-sex couple gets married in a state where uh, those marriages are legal. So let's say they get married in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um, If they then move to a state that uh, constitutionally bans same-sex marriage, say um, Arizona, um, Arizona does not have to recognize their marriage and in fact will not recognize their marriage. Under the Full Faith and Credit Clause, states are required to uh, recognize contracts entered into in other states unless doing so violates their public policy. And that's why uh, so many legislatures enacted statutes banning same-sex marriage, and then why uh, so many states adopted constitutional amendments prohibiting the recognition of same-sex marriages entered into another states. It was to make clear that that recognition Violated their public policy, such that they would not need to recognize those marriages under the full faith and credit clause. Wow, yeah. So that's 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 why there. Were, one of the reasons why there was so much activity. Now Congress is trying to say, um, we're passing this law, and then you must recognize it under the full faith and credit clause. I'm not sure Congress has the authority to do that. Um, it might. If it has findings that uh, doing so affects, say, interstate commerce, which Congress has the power to regulate, uh, it could also force states to do that by tying federal funds to the recognition of those marriages. Um, But the law it passed doesn't do that. Uh, The law it passed says um, it just has to under the full faith and credit clause, which may not be enough. So the law that's pending right now does some important things for don't for changing the definition of marriage. It purports to solve this other problem amongst the states. It is not written in such a way that I'm confident it would be upheld in the courts.
0: So this sounds a lot like what is happening with Roe falling and this state-by-state state injunctions and decisions because you know, when Roe was decided, states did not repeal the laws that were on the books. And so there are what we call trigger laws that are still in the books where, you know, several states have laws that say abortion is banned as soon as Roe falls. And then other states, um, Michigan is one, for example, where, you know, the administration is pro-choice, but there's a bill on the books from 1931 that they just never bothered to repeal. So what does the world look like if a burger fell falls? Does it look the same? As, do we have the same situation that we have? with Roe falling with abortion? We do. Um, and actually it's it's even more lopsided.
1: Um, there were, um, I think about 15 or so states uh, with trigger, I think 18 states with trigger laws um, where abortion was automatically uh, illegal. Um, in, in the same-sex marriage context, 35 states have bans uh, written into their constitution. Um, Now, some state Supreme Courts have held that those are are unconstitutional under their state constitutions. And so the best I could say is about 18 states will still recognize same-sex marriage, but none of the other states will. And if couples get married in those 18 states and then move to one of the other states, those states will not recognize their marriage. And if Congress does not enact this law to repeal DOMA, uh, the federal government also will not recognize their marriages
0: and what about folks who have gotten married in states you know I have tons of friends who' gotten married in Texas and Arizona and you know other states where, where where same-sex marriage was illegal before the Supreme Court decision you know do we have an idea of what happens to those marriages um, what we have seen is um,
1: is look, sometimes the, the one option is that they could be grandfathered in so the California State Supreme Court ruled that the state constitution uh, required uh, the state to recognize same-sex marriages. And then um, later that year, there was a constitutional ballot measure uh, to make to, to amend the, the California's constitution to ban same-sex marriage. But during that window between the California State Supreme Court case and the ballot measure, uh, couples got married. And then the question was, well, what happens to those marriages? And what the California Supreme Court ruled was that those marriages, since they were valid when they were entered into, remained valid. While the courts were reviewing um, the constitutionality of the ballot measure, new couples couldn't get married. So that is one possibility, right? One possibility is that the existing marriages stay valid and we have a two-tier system. Mm-hmm. Another possibility is the courts say, well, it was wrong when it was decided, which meant that you had no right to get married. Um, and therefore, um, we courts, states do not have to recognize those marriages.
0: Now, a lot of your scholarship focuses on families um, and also the consequences um, of, of who's recognized as a family and who isn't. So I would love for you to talk about why marriage matters. Like, why is it a big deal if someone is married? How does it impact uh, having children, how does it impact end of life decisions? Why is marriage such an important right for same sex couples? So we think of marriage as a decision,
1: an event, right? But it is actually a status um, with which, in which there are tons of rights bundled. So if you are married, uh, you have automatic inheritance rights, and you actually cannot disinherit your spouse uh, entirely. Um, if you are married and have children, uh, that marriage makes both of you legal parents. If you are not married, um, you have to either, the, the person who did not give birth to the child has to adopt the child. Otherwise, there is no legal relationship uh, if the relationship falls apart and you don't get custody, necessarily get custody or visitation rights. Um there are many decisions uh, around uh, children and parenthood uh, that come with with marriage right having the right to make medical decisions for the child, you have to be a legal parent and marriage confers that. Um, so it is not just a relationship between the two people. it is a relationship that affects the entire family and affects that entire unit's relationship with the state. It affects oh. social security. Uh, rights, pension rights, taxation, um, it, is, it has financial consequences as well.
0: Well, and I, I think it is worth noting that, you know, there are still states, I believe, right, that, that have restrictions on same-sex adoption, right, when the, when the couple is a same-sex couple. Um, and so even if you wanted to adopt the child that your partner gave birth to, you may not be allowed to in those states, particularly once Obergefell falls
1: correct um, and same-sex couples absolutely face discrimination when when they try to adopt children there was a case before the supreme court last summer that said religious agencies can refuse to work with same-sex couples trying to adopt um, and so it, it is interesting to think about the fact that lgbtq rights have gained so much ground in such a short period of time um, but there are many rights that people are still fighting for, and uh, the Obergefell it, it, the Obergefell decision affects those uh, in part because it talks about the need to um, provide equality to same-sex relationships, to not stigmatize uh, couples, same-sex couples who have children, and that has trickled down into other areas of law. So, if you take away the Obergefell decision, it raises the the attendant rights, the things that attach to marriage, uh, all of the the privileges that that come with marriage, it puts those in jeopardy. All
0: right now, what I'd love to do for the rest of the show, because you do have a book forthcoming, um, I would love to focus in on your book and and you know how the book has been impacted. By Dobbs. And, you know, part of the reason for this discussion is, you know, I saw you lamenting on Twitter, like, what do you do when when you are writing a book and the Supreme Court keeps changing the, the subject matter? So let's get into it first. You know, what's the title of the book and what is the premise of the work?
1: So the, the title of the book is Becoming an Equal, American Law and the Rise of the Gay Family. And uh, I say gay family, even though we've been talking about LGBTQ plus this entire time, because I really am focused on same-sex couples. Um, it, would be, it, would be two, it would be a multi-volume work to talk about trans and non-binary and intersex and asexual rights, although uh, I will happily write those volumes later. Um, but um, the, the, the premise of the book um, is that um, that we need to understand the history of how we got to marriage equality. So there are many histories of the marriage equality movement, but there were significant fundamental changes in American law and society that made marriage equality a possibility, um, that made it imaginable and legally possible. So it's about the story before we get to marriage. The last chapter is about marriage. It's about how American law and society changed. And a big part of that is how same-sex couples were able to form families before they were legally allowed to marry. So um, we just talked about how um, marriage creates all sorts of family rights. Um, and for, for many couples, marriage is the start of their family together. Um, but for same-sex couples before Obergefell, um, marriage came later. They had formed their families. They had fought for family rights. And by forming those families, they fundamentally reshaped how America understood family law, Um, and same-sex sexuality, and that made marriage possible. So it's about the history of family law, the history of gay and lesbian rights, but it's also a book about how legal change happens. Um, It focuses on sort of state and local levels. You know, we've been talking about congressional action, um, but that's not where the action in this book is. It's about small changes at the state and local level um, by people who didn't think of themselves as being involved in law reform. Right, my main characters are not lawyers, uh, they're not judges, they're not legislators, although they all feed, come into the book, but they are psychologists and social workers and teachers, uh, union uh, shop stewards, and uh, corporate HR departments, they're faith leaders. And what the book shows us is that so many people can make a difference,
0: um, which is particularly important to, to recognize in this moment. Absolutely. You know, what what are some of the mechanisms that 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 gay couples were using to establish family before the right to marriage existed? So they fought for all sorts of rights. Um, Many
1: of these family rights started when um, same sex couples um, uh, or same sex couple forms after uh, one of the parties had been married uh, in an opposite sex relationship and had children there. And then uh, the the lesbian mother or gay father fought uh, for custody of their children, sometimes raising them with their new same-sex partners. Um, So there were custody battles and custody rights. There were same-sex couples who fought for the right uh, to adopt and foster foster and adopt children uh, in a time when states banned them from doing so. And they led challenges to those policies. Um, They convinced, unions to fight for uh, domestic partnership benefits and they convinced uh, city government officials and state legislators to recognize domestic partnerships um, before before marriage was on the table. Um, They uh, lobbied for schools to present uh, in their discussions of families the many types of families that existed. Uh, children were learning about you know, the two family nuclear household, and they said, the family is so much bigger than that. We have single parent unions, we have grandparents raising children, we have same sex couples raising children. And so they fought to have that representation in schools. Um, there, were, there were all sorts of ways in which they made um, legal recognition of their families possible before we even got to marriage.
0: You know, I think the AIDS epidemic brought end of life decisions, and and what those status, what the status of marriage and what the status of family means, um, in end of life decision making. Um, are you focusing on some of those end of life decisions in your book, and how how those those battles um, maybe impacted the movement?
1: Yeah. So a big turning point for the movement was the AIDS crisis. Um, the AIDS epidemic began in the early '80s. Um, There wasn't really effective treatment for AIDS until the early 90s. And during this period, we have um, a huge movement to recognize family rights beyond those that that focus on children. Um, It was partners who didn't have access to bereavement leave to attend their their longstanding partner's funerals who didn't have the right to be in the hospital room visiting their partners as they were dying, didn't have the right to make end-of-life decisions, and instead family members who um, had been estranged and maybe they hadn't spoken, the the person who was on their deathbed hadn't spoken to them for decades, they were making those decisions and then cutting the partners out of... um, out of uh, the last moments of their loved one's lives, uh, weren't letting them uh, inherit, kicking them out of the homes that they had shared. Um, There was an important case uh, from that period that also highlighted the importance of family rights, um, where uh, a woman um, was in a car accident and was left uh, permanently disabled. And that woman's family didn't allow her decades long partner to be in her life anymore because they got guardianship. And so uh, not having access to to family rights uh, had a significant effect on, on um, these couples relationships at the time when they were the, at their most vulnerable. And uh, it really highlights the harm that can
0: come from not having access to marriage equality. Now, what were some of the mechanisms used um, to Prevent these these horrible things from happening at end of life, Um, and and did any of those? You know, I believe wasn't. um, I feel like there wasn't there a scotus case that dealt with end of life. I may be wrong, but um, well, no, no, it wasn't scotus.
1: Um, So there, there were some. uh, The the Windsor and Obergefell cases uh, talked about couples who who were cut out of end of life decisions. So certainly in the background of people's minds, Um, and there were ways. Uh, that couples could contract into those rights. So um, they they created wills. They gave people power of attorney to make medical decisions. Uh, They listed each other as uh, beneficiaries on on their life insurance. Um, But the problem with those is that although you can contract into lots of the benefits of marriage, um, you have to have access to an attorney to do that. And so it only protected the rights of the most privileged and uh, the people with uh, the most money who could protect themselves. Um And uh, if there was any problem with any of the documents, those rights fell away. Mm-hmm. Um a third problem was that it requires people to recognize those contracts. So um, there were uh, there are too many stories of um, parents who uh, gave their partners, Um, uh, decision-making authority over their children, and then the hospitals refuse to allow their partners to be in the hospital with the children they were raising or make decisions for them. Uh, Contracts require enforcement, and sometimes there isn't time to get that enforcement.
0: Now, we've discussed end of life, and we've discussed the adoption of children that maybe exist already. Um, How is your book discussing or dealing with um, either you know, IVF and those kinds of parenting decisions um, that, that were happening pre-Obergefell um, or even just attempts by same-sex couples to adopt?
1: So I've got, um, I, I've got an entire chapter on adoption, uh, which includes both uh, efforts to combat bans on uh, gay, lesbian, foster, and adoptive parenting, as well as the questions that IVF and surrogacy raised for same-sex couples. Um, because once one partner had a child, the other sought to adopt and argued that they were like a step parent, and so um, they created a new type of adoption right. They call it was called a second parent adoption, which is still in place in um, in many places. And the way in which unmarried couples, same sex couples, are allowed uh, to adopt children and assert their rights. But again, adoption is expensive and it's a long process. And so, this is a story about the creative ways in which people um, asserted their rights when uh, the legal system was against them. Um, but there are really severe limitations of that because not everyone has access to those uh, those private rights of action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, recognizing marriage equality is about equality between same sex couples' merit unions and opposite-sex couples' unions. It's also about ensuring quality within members of the movement so they have access to the same rights.
0: I, you know, I'd love you to talk a little... We've, we've touched on it over and over again, the, the wealth disparities within the movement and who has access to what. Um, has Obergefell improved some of those income and, and, and wealth-based disparities in the movement?
1: Um. No, um, I would say it is a problem across social movements where um, the most privileged, most privileged voices uh, get the most attention. So the fact that merit, I mean, look, the fact that marriage equality became the focus of LGBTQ plus rights groups um, is a function of the fact that the, 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 the wealthiest, the members of the community, the biggest donors, um, that it was their priority. And uh, the movement sort of came along with that. Um, many of these family rights were really sparked by uh, the, the white upper middle-class section of the movement. And um, there are so many rights that are not currently on people's agendas because they're, they're not um, what the, the most privileged members of the movement want. So um, attention to the fact that trans folks are most likely to be arrested and to the harms that happen to them in prison, and that this disproportionately affects trans people of color. Um, That um, is not in the news as much as uh, bans on uh, children playing sports. Um, And that is a function in part of, um, of what movement leaders are doing. It's also a function of what legislators are responding to and making the issue of the movement. Um, so I don't I don't want to suggest that I'm laying blame uh, on you know people you know who have decision making authority ignoring uh, marginalized uh, community members. Um, I do think it is true that uh, overwhelmingly, and we have seen this in uh, in the civil rights movement, in uh, the feminist rights movement, um, that um, it is it that rights affecting the most privilege get the most traction. Uh, and that is in part because they're also the ones that are uh, perhaps easier to, to
0: gain. Well, and I, I think, you know, as progressives or as, as people who want to advance change, we really have to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not just prioritize the easiest things first or the things that are the squeakiest wheels first. We really do have to be more comprehensive in the movement. Because uh, even when I think about women's rights and women's equality movements, um, there are some folks who've written about, you know, why didn't we use 13th Amendment points and why haven't we used other points, um, you know, to, to advance these changes. And it's like, well, those weren't the people advocating it. And so I would like to hope that we've learned our lesson a little bit and we we realize we have to attack on all fronts at all time and can't just rest on our laurels and think that we're always going to have our rights.
1: I will say that although I've just, you know, naysayed a lot of things, mm-hmm. um, I do think the movement, at least the LGBTQ plus movement, has become more inclusive. Um, they are organizations are representing trans and non-binary rights in a way that they weren't before. Mm-hmm. Um, so um there is a long history of of excluding those at the margins. There's also a really good history of trying to be better. And that doesn't mean that it's happening in, in every context, but it does mean that there is, there is reason for optimism.
0: Right. You know, I, you, you mentioned there are some rights that have, have been left by the wayside, and I would love to hear you um, or just get your opinion on, you know, I call this like if you could wave a magic wand moment <laughs> of, of almost every episode. Uh, but if you could wave a magic wand and, you know, have more perfect marriage equality, have more perfect LGBTQ rights, um, you know, what what would that look like for you? What, what types of things would you change in addition to what we already have changed?
1: So I would I would make I would wave my wand over the Supreme Court and make sure that they don't overturn any established rights. Um, I would have them um, understand what uh, trans rights are and uh, why it is that is important to respect trans rights uh, and and support them. I would like to see um, a, a world in which. Uh, people did not have to fear, and this is beyond law, uh, didn't have to fear being rejected from their families uh, for, for being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, or they didn't have to fear being rejected and ostracized by their communities, um, discriminated against in school, in employment. Um, people don't feel safe being out at work despite federal protections. They don't feel like they can uh, ask people to use their preferred pronouns. Um uh, trans individuals are more likely to be targeted um, by by law enforcement. And um, there is there are doctors performing um, gender uh, corrective or norm, quote unquote normalization surgery on intersex infants before they have the ability to consent to those surgeries. So I would say there is a lot of room for improvement. Uh, I am glad that Congress is trying to take up DOMA. I think that is the Sort of one small step. Uh, I would really like to see um, people mobilize in every state uh, to really press for LGBTQ rights. I think that um, there was a sense that with marriage equality, you know, a page had been turned and we were in a new world. And I think we are seeing that um, the activism that, that accompanied marriage equality, that force needs to continue. And there needs to be a concerted effort to really push to ensure that uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community are, are equal members of American society.
0: Now, how has the Dobbs decision impacted what's happening in your book? Um, have you had to just scrap entire parts of your outline and start over? Um, you know, what, what does the book look like now that that we've lost substantive due process and, and the right to privacy?
1: Well, so I do want to say um, we, we have lost some uh, substantive due process and right to privacy rights. Uh, unclear what the court will do post-Dobbs. Right. I said there are reasons to think that it wouldn't do anything because it said um, it you know, was adamant that abortion is different because it involves a potential life. Uh, the analysis it used to uh, to overturn precedent uh, may not come out the same way. And I'm happy to get into the weeds on those factors if you think that'd be interesting. But I'll, I'll leave it there for now. There are reasons to think that it will overturn um, Obergefell and even Lawrence because uh, it said that the right to privacy only protects uh, rights deeply rooted in the history, the nation's history and traditions, which uh, same-sex sexual activity and uh, and gay, lesbian, bisexual, non-binary, trans rights are certainly not deeply rooted in the history, uh, in the nation's history and traditions, which we started talking about, uh, started talking about at the outset of this, this podcast. Um, so it is possible that these, um, that Dobbs was unique. It is just about abortion. It is possible that it will change. And I'm writing in this realm of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, when I, when I started the book, I wanted to make clear that marriage equality was an important legal victory. um, but it was not the end all and be all for LGBTQ plus rights. There are so many more issues, which, which we've talked about. And so I always wanted to clarify that, um, I was writing a book about how we got to a signature decision, not how we got to equality. It's why the title is Becoming Equal, because it is still a process of becoming. Um, at the same time, it was hard not to feel optimistic that it had gotten to this uh, incredible legal victory and now be pessimistic that that's on the table for going away. So I'm trying to remind myself as I write this that Every rights movement has major successes and has suffered severe setbacks. Mm -hmm. So uh, second wave feminists pressed for abortion rights. They got Roe and now there's Dobbs. The civil rights movement secured the Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court gutted. Um, Mm -hmm. The move towards rights is two steps forward, one step back. And it's really important to remember that. in the moments of triumph, that things can go backwards, but also in the mo- moments of defeat, to know that things can progress in really positive ways despite all of that.
0: Uh, you're far more optimistic than I am. I, you know, I think I have no faith in precedent anymore. Um, when, you know, I think I, I don't know. I and, and I'm probably just like too in the Dobbs spiral. Um, but I and don't think know what, what yeah, helps. Go ahead. Is that I'm mostly not writing about precedent. Um,
1: in that most of the history that got us to this major precedent was not based on courts. It was based on um, on local municipal ordinances, on state laws. You know, Litigation mattered, but it's only a piece of the puzzle. And so um, if we take a step back and, and look at comprehensively how rights advance, the Supreme Court matters, but it's only one voice amongst many. It is an important voice, right? Like, I don't want to discount it. Um, Losing the right uh, to to marriage equality would be a terrible, terrible blow and a huge setback. Um, But I think working on this book has made me more optimistic because I can see just how many levers of power there are and how many people can push on them.
0: I, I think that is a great point for us to to start to wind down with, because, you know, so many people think that law is only federal So many people think that only the presidential election matters or who you put in Congress matters. Uh, But what your research is showing is it matters who's in your county clerk's office. It matters who your mayor is. It matters who's on your city council because so many of your rights and what they look like are defined by local sources. Um, so if there's any takeaway for anyone um, as we fight these state by state battles, um, you need to be voting in those interim elections and you need to be active in your local politics because that that can make or break you, especially if the court you know, guts things.
1: I think lots of people have been asking themselves, what do I do uh, when the Supreme Court is making these decisions that I disagree with? And the answer is that even if you are not a lawyer, even if you are not an elected official, you can still have a really tangible effect on rights. I think most of the people I write about did not expect to be remembered by history as significant in a rights movement. They were doing what they thought was just in the moment in the community. And that
0: had incredible power. Absolutely. You can make change case by case, right? You can make change contract by contract, and day by day, you don't have to run for Congress to make change. It's what, what you do at the grassroots level and what you do every day that matters. All right. So I'm trying to decide if I should ask you this. Le- no, I think we'll just wrap you it up for a hopeful note? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I want to end on a hopeful note, right? Because um, we've kind of already discussed whether Congress can save us. And, you know, I appreciated your analysis, especially um, of, of the limits of the legislation, because I did wake up this morning hear that they'd passed a marriage equality statute in Congress, but I hadn't read it because um, I knew you would tell me. Um, and I think it doesn't shock me that what we got out of Congress doesn't quite go far enough that, that we do need to go further.
1: It doesn't. But even in that, I take optimism in the fact that it was a bipartisan bill.
0: Yes. Yes. We will celebrate any bipartisan bipartisanship we can get um, you know, out of this current Congress, um, and let's just hope the Senate can can find a way to do it as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I always enjoy a conversation with Marie Amelie. Her book will be finished in a year. and then we'll be out maybe in a year and a half. But in the meantime, you can check out all of her work on SSRN. You can find her on the Wake Forest professor page. Um, She tweets a lot and has good things to say on Twitter. Um, And she is my source for LGBTQ plus rights and often gets me together on which terms I'm using and how I'm using them. So I appreciate the education. Thank you so much for appearing. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And thank you all for listening to Get In Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are played, which includes Spotify and Apple Podcasts. They also rebroadcast on the Voice America Network and we post on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or you can reach out to me on social media. I'm at C on all platforms. Thanks again for listening and thank you again for joining me. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.